century AD, one of the greatest intellectual and scientific movements in history was beginning in the city of Baghdad. It would take its place alongside the classical Greek states that produced Aristotle, Plato, and Euclid, and the great Italian Renaissance with Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, and Machiavelli. Now, in truth, there was a clear lineage linking all of these together. While the Western colonial narrative liked to paint the high points of Rome and the Renaissance as separated by a gulf called the Dark Ages, when the great learning of the past was temporarily lost, only to be rediscovered, the reality, which now has even made its way into standard high school textbooks, is that the intellectual foundations of this classical world were never really lost, but rather moved, first to Baghdad, and then to cities throughout the Muslim world, which continued to exchange ideas with Europe right up to the Renaissance. And this was not just a transmission. The ideas that emerged in Renaissance Europe were developed, adapted, and in some cases even invented by the Arabs. And so, in this episode, we're going to look at the first stage in this intellectual explosion, the so-called translation movement, which lasted from the founding of Baghdad in 750 AD until roughly 950. Despite the name, it was a lot more than just translation going on, but this period marked the dominance of Arabic as the cultural, scientific, and intellectual language of the Western world. So stay tuned. Muslim conquest established the largest empire the world had yet seen. The Umayyad Caliphate, which lasted almost exactly 100 years, set up the military and political and bureaucratic structure. The Abbasid Caliphate, which we talked about last time, and which supplanted the Umayyads in 750, basically continued the work that the Umayyads had set up. The second Abbasid Caliph, Abu Jafar al-Mansur, established Baghdad as the planned city of this great empire. And remember, he intended this city from the very start to be the greatest in the world, to reflect the power of the state. Uh, he designed just about everything about it except the name. Remember, it was not supposed to be called Baghdad. It was supposed to be called Medina as Salam. But everything else established this really as the political, military, economic center of the world, and at the same time, it would become the great center of learning and scholarship in the world. Meanwhile, the Islamic Empire had absorbed some of the great civilizations of the past. These included Sassanid Persia, which at least on a cultural level really melded in with the Abbasid state, the Syriac and Greek Christian centers formerly controlled by Byzantium, but most importantly the great city of Alexandria in Egypt, which had uh, the famous library and was really a, the great intellectual center of its time. Now conceptually it's very important here to distinguish the Muslim civilization from other conquerors like, say, the Mongols or the Huns, who were more famous for burning books and throwing them into rivers than they were for writing them. 
And this is important because the stereotype in the colonial West was to picture Arab Bedouins swarming out of the desert in much the same way as the Huns or the Mongols did. But these were not uh, nomads encountering alien people in settled cities with lots of wealth for the taking. Whatever sort of military traditions that the Muslims brought from their Bedouin heritage, this was an Islamic empire which saw itself as the successor of the Jewish and Christian heritage, and thus it's fitting that the scholars who really kickstart the Islamic philosophical movement are Arab Christians. That fit in perfectly with the view of the time. If we remember, the Prophet Muhammad started out by reaching out to the Byzantine emperor and the other major Christian emperors and monotheists to reform. He wasn't trying to conquer them. And so, by the way, uh, during the colonial period, it became very common to divide the world into East and West, and the Arabs were typically lumped in with the East. And that's where we get the term Orientalist uh, for someone who studies the Arab world. But as this history hopefully shows, and it will continue to show, the civilization we're talking about here is clearly a part of the Western heritage. And largely when we talk about this being the, the center of the world, we're talking about the Western world. China in India are very much separate and on their own historical tracks. Now, secondly, the Arabs had long contact with Roman and Persian civilizations, and they had great respect for their economic and cultural achievements. Politically and militarily, they conquered these civilizations, but culturally, they really assimilated them. And lastly, and this is perhaps the most important idea here, is that Islam saw itself as the capstone not just of the world's religions, but really of, of all of history, of, of everything that was going on. Remember we discussed earlier the idea of Dar es Salaam, the domain of peace. That was the, the part of the world under the control of the Muslim empire. And Dar al-Harb, the world outside, the, the fringe area, sort of the, the wild warlike area. And if we think about what uh, medieval Europe was like in the 7th and 8th century, you can see why these names seem to fit. For an analogy, we think about at the end of the Cold War, uh, Francis Fukuyama gains his 15 minutes of fame by writing a very popular book which was entitled The End of History. And what that meant was, because the Cold War was over, that this was it. American capitalist democracy had become the permanent eternal world system. Well, that's sort of the view we're talking about here. It's the idea of this is it. All that's gone on before has somewhat been great. It's sometimes been misguided. But Islam is this capstone to all of it. And if you remember, we talked about the idea of Islam being not just a religion, but it's a religion, an empire, a state, a culture, a civilization. And it's the capstone of all of this that has gone before it. So the Muslims saw themselves not just as the inheritors of the Jewish and Christian religious traditions, but of all the scholarship that had gone before, the Greeks, the Romans, Plato, Aristotle, they had now inherited that. And that's somewhat natural if you look at what the situation of the world was at the time. The Roman Empire had collapsed, Europe was in very bad shape, but Baghdad had become the, the center of this Western world. So it was very logical to think that they had inherited all that had gone before.
it would be the fifth caliph, Harun al-Rashid, who established the famed Beit al-Hikmah, or House of Wisdom, in the year 786 as a great library and center of scholarship. And this institution is really seen as the, the epicenter of this intellectual movement. But it's important to realize, uh, I mean, it's the epicenter in, in the sense that, say, Oxford University is the epicenter of learning in English. Okay, it's one great place, and there are many others, and that are established separately. Well, scholars from all over the conquered territories, as well as outside, poured into Baghdad. So, uh, this was the place that you went to to study. And even if you weren't Muslim and had no intention of becoming Muslim, could be, let's say, a, a scientist in optics or mathematics, I mean, you went to where the other great scientists were to compare notes. And so this was the great research center of the day. Now, the actual existence of the Beit al-Hikmah has been debated, and this is sort of a recent debate. The idea that there was a physical location called the Beit al-Hikmah had, had been accepted until very recently. Some scholars today doubt whether there was an actual building that was the Beit al-Hikmah or whether it was more a concept. Whether there actually was a building or not is not the important thing. The important thing is that the caliphs poured a tremendous amount of money into sponsoring research, translation, uh, into, into science, into philosophy, into all these areas. Another reason for their uh, enthusiasm was that their main rival, the political rival, in some sense a religious rival to the Islamic State, was the Byzantine Empire. And the fact that the Islamic Caliphate had never been able to conquer Constantinople was their greatest frustration in the world. Well, the Byzantines were a Greek civilization. Uh, they never called themselves the Byzantines. And so, in a sense, the fact that the Muslims were taking over the Greek knowledge and scholarship and building upon that was a way of taking something away from the Byzantines and showing that it now belonged to them, to the Abbasids. It was a way of, well, despite all this fancy talk of golden ages and intellectual achievements, the main function of all this effort was really practical. So again, we're talking about the world's largest state with huge logistical challenges on a scale that had not been seen before. Technology had progressed slowly by our standards, but still it had progressed, and so this Abbasid empire still faced challenges on a scale that, say, the Greeks or the Romans had not seen. Engineering, navigation, timekeeping, weights and measures, regulating markets, taxes, public health, and so on. This was the real impetus for the emphasis on science in the caliphate. So yes, Islam approved of and encouraged exploration and learning, but it was need that drove the process. And so here again, we have to emphasize that what really distinguishes Islam from, say, Judaism and Christianity is that it begins and remains as a state as well as a religion. The same person who is responsible for the mosques and for Islamic law is also responsible for the roads and the dams and the army and the bureaucracy. And this is a reason why adapting this science, progressing it, and putting it to use is, it's a responsibility of the caliph. So, as we mentioned, the first phase in this Islamic intellectual flourishing 
is known as the Translation Movement, which runs for about the first 200 years of the Abbasid period. The translation in question here is largely translation of classical Greek works into Arabic, with Indian works as a distant second. But the title is, is somewhat of a misnomer, because there's a lot more than translation going on here. Now, this idea really comes from the Western historians, who at first wouldn't give Muslims any credit for transmitting the works of the Greeks and Romans, but then begrudgingly they acknowledged that, yes, the Arabs had preserved these works until Europe was ready to start its renaissance and, and take it over for them. So the idea of a translation movement conveys that very limited role of translating this stuff into Arabic and putting it away for safekeeping until some smart Europeans are ready to come take it over. And truly, I mean, when I was in school, that's what I learned. We learned American history, then we learned European history, and it was only vaguely mentioned that some of this knowledge had been stored away and preserved by the Arabs, and that was the extent of it. It was never the idea that the Arabs had made great discoveries and innovations on their own. And I have to say, just to give a shout out here, going way back many years ago, I think the first place that I really encountered this idea I was on the uh, Spaceship Earth ride at Epcot Center. If you've been in there and you've gone through it, I remember when it first opened and Walter Cronkite did the voiceover and you take this ride through history and you see the part where Rome lays in ruins and then the next thing it says, all was not lost, Islamic and Jewish scholars. And it, it's a scene where they're, I mean, essentially doing astronomy there. And so that was like the... Back in 1982, when that opened, that was pretty much a, a revolutionary thing to say, oh yes, this Western knowledge that we have, a lot of it came at least through Islamic and Jewish scholars. So I always remember that. That's the coolest part of the ride for me. just talking about translation. I mean, yes, a huge amount of translation had to take place, but that was part of a process of analysis, commentary, criticism, sometimes outright rejection and reworking of ideas, and then making new ideas to fit in the gaps. And I think, secondly, it's also important to remember that translations were not done just for translation's sake. Translation almost always occurred in response to a need. So it wasn't, let's just translate these writings of Euclid, say, and file them away for future generations. It was, let's translate Euclid so we can understand what he had to say about geometric problems and then put that knowledge to use. And so that was always going on. It wasn't like there was a huge 200-year uh, period of pure translation and then innovation started after that. Uh, it was always translation for the purpose of application. Now, as is the case today, anyone at a university knows this, research is expensive business and generally only found in societies with great prosperity. Research only goes on when you have a lot of government support, and we spend a lot of time going out trying to get that support. Well, things were not that much different back in the Abbasid period. The translation movement would not have been possible without the abundant wealth of the Abbasid Empire, and it also served as a means of displaying that wealth. 
Just like it is today, the reason that so many educational institutions have the names of famous rich people on them, the Carnegie Foundation, the Rockefellers, it's a way of showing your sponsorship for worthy causes. So translators were paid lavishly. These were not slaves or monks who were uh, tucked away. These are people who are highly educated, and they got paid a great deal. Any attempt to try and relate the prices over the course of centuries is very subjective, and going back a millennium and a half is really a lot of speculation. But one estimate says that the cost of translating a single book from Greek into Arabic would be about $3 million in today's money. Now, of course, you can do it cheaper nowadays because we have a lot more trained linguists and translators. There's even a story, which is probably a legend, but it captures the spirit of the age, that the seventh caliph, al-Ma'mun, is said to have paid scholars for their written works by their weight in gold. And the story is supposedly that his vizier came to him and said, hey, you can't do this because they're intentionally making the books longer to get more money. And he said to them, I don't care. It's worth whatever it costs. Well, it testifies to two aspects of the Abbasid Caliphate at the time. Number one is the emphasis on scholarship, but number two is the amount of money that they had. I mean, this is not something you do if your people are starving or you're losing a war. So when the Mongols finally threw all the books of the Beit al-Hikmah into the Tigris River, the river is said to have run black with ink, and they are said that a person could walk across the river on the books. And that probably is not a legend. That is, uh, appears to be an actual eyewitness account. Again, this is a testimony to the scale of the libraries of Baghdad, and it's also a testimony to the different points of view that the Mongols had uh, to the Muslims. Now, although the translation movement is associated with the Khalifs, we should remember it's not just the Khalifs who were sponsoring this. Wealthy figures, be they military, merchants, or officials, they always have sought to burnish their legacies by sponsoring educational institutions, and this is the same way. Uh, in the medieval Muslim world, it was the medjlis that was where a prominent person would display their wealth and culture. A medjlis is a gathering. Literally, the word means a seating. But one would bring in prominent scholars, poets, people of political influence, and they'd do everything from tell, you know, naughty poems to drinking songs to even having serious intellectual debates. And so sponsoring translations, because it was so expensive, set you apart as being someone of, of great importance. Now, one of the sources we have for this information, and it's really an invaluable source, is a bibliographer of the 10th century. Now, that's not an exciting profession. You don't generally go out and say, I want to become a bibliographer. But he's incredibly important as a man named Ibn al-Nadim. And he produced what he claimed was a catalog of all Arabic books and authors of the 10th century. And this, this work, of course, has become famous. It's sort of like a who's who of Abbasid society. But it, one of the reasons it's important is because the Mongols destroyed so many books. Basically, what we have is a catalog of what existed instead of the actual books themselves. But the interesting thing is amongst the, the leading personalities of the empire that he lists, he lists 70 translators. 
Now, if you think about it today, if you, you went to a who's who and it would be filled with businessmen, entrepreneurs, maybe scientists, Nobel Prize winners, and so forth, you wonder how many translators would you expect to find in that list? Well, at that time, these were very highly respected people. Now, however, we can't go any further without talking about one innovation without which really all of this would not have been possible, and that is the introduction of paper. It was during the, right at the beginning of the Abbasid Empire, that paper was introduced from China. Now, the legend is that this happened after the Battle of Talas in the year 751 AD, when an Abbasid army defeated a Tang Dynasty army along the Silk Road. It is said that they captured paper makers from China at that time. Well, whether that actually happened or not is not known, but it was at the same time that paper makers from China were brought to Baghdad and introduced the making of paper. Now, it could just be that they came because they could see that this was obviously going to be a great market for it. Well, like the introduction of the printing press seven centuries later and the internet after that, this was an exponential leap in the history of communications. Prior to this, they had to write on papyrus, which was very difficult to make, or on animal skins, which obviously was difficult and very expensive. The introduction of uh, paper was really a revolution, and uh, unfortunately, it's one thing that didn't make it into the Spaceship Earth Pavilion because they have nothing about uh, China or the uh, Eastern world, but that should have been up there as one of the revolutions in communications. Well, this took off in Baghdad. As you can see, with all the scholarship going on and the, the definite need here, the, the ability to write on paper, which just made it possible to produce an, an exponentially larger amount of books and sell them, found a huge market in this city. And so in a very short time, we saw a huge paper-making workshops spring up in Baghdad. And I mean huge by the standards of the time. This was still pretty much a handicraft business. You know, it's an artisanal business. It's not a huge factory uh, going on as we would later see. And booksellers uh, throughout the city of Baghdad. And again, this would spread to other parts of the empire as other emirs, military leaders wanted to catch up on the same thing. So when we think of the, the image of the slow and laborious work of the scribes in the monasteries of medieval Europe, the great wealth of the Abbasid Empire made large-scale production of paper bookbinding, as well as employing teams of scholars and establishing libraries staffed with professional librarians possible. Again, it's economies of scale. They could have very uh, specialized people in this entire process. So in some cases, uh, some libraries, such as that of Mosul, which is north of Baghdad, supplied free paper to scholars to help, help encourage them in their works. Now, to us nowadays, that doesn't seem like much. But that was huge. Well, if one stereotype in history is to see the Arabs as mere translators of documents, then the other side is to see all the achievements of this movement as the work of Arab Muslims. In truth, most of the people involved were not ethnically Arab, and at least initially, most were not Muslim, and throughout the entire Abbasid Empire, a, a significant amount would not be Muslim. What they had in common was, number one, 
sponsorship by the Islamic Empire, either the Abbasid Caliphate or Umayyad Spain, and the second, of course, was the language in which they worked, Arabic. And in fact, Arabic is the most accurate umbrella term to use for this wide range of intellectuals, because that's the one thing that they have in common. And indeed, a great many of these people did not speak Arabic as their first language. So you can be forgiven if you get a little bit confused by the fact that the same scholars are claimed by the Arabs and by other nationalities. Ibn Sina is claimed as a great Arab scholar. He's also claimed uh, by the Persians. Well, the fact is he was ethnically Persian. He spoke and wrote in Persian. Uh, but he also did his, his great work in Arabic because that was the language of the time. And this again points to one of the great achievements of the empire, and that was making Arabic the lingua franca. As we said, this was done for religious reasons, but once it was done, this meant this was the language in which terminology was developing and which all the great work was being done. So by this point, Arabic had really become the lingua franca of the Western world, much like English is today. Scientists today from China or Germany or Morocco publish in English. You can go to academic conferences in Singapore and Tokyo and Stockholm, and the language is English. But it's because that's the language that has the terminology they need. In fact, I have many Arab friends here who study engineering, chemistry, medicine, and they have to study at least partially in English, which is ironic when we consider that at the time we're talking about, everyone had to study in Arabic. And the idea here is that this sort of thing snowballs. If the latest research, let's say, in optics or mathematics is being done in Arabic, then someone from outside the empire who wants to work on this or study on this has to learn the Arabic. They have to read in the Arabic, and then what they write, what they publish, is going to be in Arabic also. And so this, it's going to have a cumulative effect. So we have quoted the great historian Philip Hitti several times, saying that Islam was simultaneously a religion, a state, and a culture. Well, to that we can add a fourth. It was also the world superpower, the world hegemon. Had hegemony over a lot of things outside its borders, like trade, for example. Traders from outside the Muslim empire used Arabic terminology and weights and measures and followed at least some Islamic laws governing trade. Well, the same thing was true intellectually. Monks in, say, England or Italy, who had no intention of becoming Muslim or moving to the Middle East, studied medicine in Arabic and used Arabic terminology. And this is how. So many Arabic terms came to be adopted into Latin and then eventually into, into English and other languages, particularly in mathematics, words like algorithm, for example. So a notable feature of this translation movement was the religious diversity within it. And particularly Christian translators, Syrian Christians especially, were very prominent in the movement. For the obvious reason was, number one, their familiarity with the Greek language and then also the Syriac language into which a lot of the Greek scholarship had passed. And in fact, they were continuing a process of translation that had begun by the Syrian Christians earlier in places such as Edessa, which would become a, a, a big crusader city. So Ibn al-Nadim, who we mentioned earlier, uh, just incidentally, he was a Shiite who belonged to the scholarly circle of a Christian philosopher that included Persians as well as Syrian Christians, 
and which studied Hindu as well as pagan sources, just sort of gives you an idea of what an ethnic and religious diversity there was. And furthermore, when we look at the lineage of the scholars and the teachers, we can see a mixing of religions. So it wasn't just that people from different religions were involved, it's that they, they actively mixed with each other. For example, the great Muslim philosopher Al-Farabi, he studied under a Christian, Yohanna ibn Haylan, and Al-Farabi's leading student, and really his protege, was another Christian, Yahya ibn Adi. This was not merely religious tolerance that was going on, it shows their shared interest. Christian, Jewish, and Muslim philosophers were interested in the same ideas and were involved in a basically a shared project of trying to show that pagan writers like Aristotle and Plato, which is what they were, uh, were actually referring to God, even if they didn't know it and didn't use those terms. And then so, of course, that made their work uh, palatable and acceptable to the monotheists. Well, although the translation movement was going on in courts all over the empire, Baghdad was the most important center of the activity, and two main groups of scholars assumed the lead. The most prolific of these was led by a Christian from southern Iraq. His name was Hunayn ibn Ishaq, and his son, Ishaq ibn Hunayn. Uh, Hunayn was the son of a pharmacist, and of course his interest was in studying medicine. Hunayn learned Greek and Latin, as well as the Syriac language, which was the language of several Christian populations in the Middle East. But Syriac was especially important because the Caliphate had inherited a large number of Greek works which had already been translated into Syriac earlier. And so at this time, the most important medical texts were from the ancient Greeks. Now, particularly Galen was the one they were most interested in. And this is where Hunayn began translating into Arabic. Uh, he personally translated over a hundred works and he also wrote many of his own texts on medicine. So again, he was not just a translator, but he was a medical scholar who was translating because of his work. Uh, he was particularly interested in ophthalmology, in treatment of the eyes. Eventually, Hunayn became the personal physician of the Khalif. And it is said that the Khalif Ma'mun was so impressed with Hunayn's translation that he appointed him in charge of the entire House of Wisdom. So again, you see, we're not just talking about pure translators. Now, by all accounts, the quality of Hunayn's translations were superior to those of his more well-known peer, and that is Abu Yusuf al-Kindi. Al-Kindi is known as the philosopher of the Arabs because he, unlike most of the scholars of his day, was ethnically Arab, uh, referred to his descent from the Akinda tribe, which is a very prominent tribe in what is now central Saudi Arabia. He was actually born in Basra, which was the major port city in Iraq, but he had roots within Arabia. And so it's very illustrative of the nature of this Abbasid empire and the importance of Arabic is that although they were all working in Arabic, that the fact that he was ethnically Arab was so noticeable, they singled him out and referred to him as the Arab philosopher. Now, Al-Kindi uh, is really seen as the first great philosopher of this empire. Now, Al-Kindi, he was very well placed in the Caliphate. He was the tutor to the son of the eighth Caliph, Al-Mu'tasim, who was the son of Harun al-Rashid. And much of what uh, Al-Kindi wrote was ostensibly dedicated to the Caliph's son, but of course it was copied and 
became important works for everyone. And again, this is the importance of paper. He could write it for one specific person, but it could be spread throughout the empire. He also worked in the Beit al-Hikmah, the House of Wisdom, although he is said to have lost his position due to the rivalries in there. So uh, again, we shouldn't think that the academic world, even back at that time, was free from all the politics and intrigues that were going on. It was just like the political world. In any case, neither Hunayn or Al-Kindi made word-for-word translations of the Greek works. As anyone who studied the languages know, they're very different languages. They're from different language families, and so you're not going to be able to translate anything uh, literally verbatim from a language like Greek into a Semitic language like Arabic. Hunayn advanced the language by developing technical terminology of his own in Arabic, and these would be followed by those after him. And again, it's sort of this linguistic hegemony. If this is the only language in the world that's active that has these terms, that has the old terms from Greek, and then the new terms that are being added on by the new discoverers, then this becomes the language that everybody has to work on, whether they're Arab or not. Worthwhile here to look at El Kindi in some detail, really as an example of the kind of scholar that this era was known for. Uh, he's, as we've seen, he's not the only one, but he is somewhat reflective of what's going on during the translation movement. El Kindi's group, by contrast, produced much looser translations and often paraphrases of the originals. And in fact, they were known to rearrange the order of the text in many cases. And some people even believe that Al-Kindi himself could not actually read Greek or Syriac, but his job was to supervise the work of the translators and then develop interpretations upon what they wrote. So again, this is a very sophisticated operation. We have people translating from Greek into Arabic, and then you have someone like Al-Kindi who is essentially translating the Arabic into better Arabic. Al-Kindi described his mission as being able to convey, quote, completely what the ancients said and to complete what they did not say comprehensively in accordance with the custom and the language and the practices of the time. And this quote comes from Peter Adamson, which, who is one of the, the great historians of Islamic philosophy. But it shows that he was not just translating, but fill in what they didn't mention. Uh, much as Hunayn had been involved in medicine, Al-Kindi was responsible for introducing a new vocabulary for philosophy in Arabic. He's really a transitional figure between the translation movement and the production of new works in philosophy. And he's basically regarded as the first great Arab philosopher, even though he did spend a lot of time working in translation. He was also the first person to identify himself as a philosopher. Now, this requires some clarification, though, because the Arabic word falsafa, which is an obvious borrowing from the Greek, was a very broad category at the time, and it meant the study of the natural world. But Al-Kindi would be the first one to separate out what we think of today as philosophy. But it is somewhat instructive to look at how Al-Kindi comes to this. He wasn't just someone who was a pure philosopher. As we said, he is one of the leaders of the translation movement. And the translation movement, as we said, was first concerned with practical sciences that were going to help the empire, things like engineering, math, and medicine. 
If you remember Al-Hunayn, the Christian was primarily focused on medicine, and so he was interested in the medical works of Galen. Al-Kindi, he began with an interest in Euclid, who is, of course, the father of geometry. And in the process of overseeing the translations and interpretation of Euclid's mathematical works, he became heavily involved in the study of Euclid's axioms, which is a system of proofs of these uh, mathematical principles by logical reasoning. Well, as his career went on, and Elkindi worked on hundreds of books, he would apply this logical system of proofs to the study of philosophy, philosophy of the natural world and what we think of as metaphysical philosophy, and that's what he's most remembered for. But when we look at it in context, we see this is much more than a a guy who was just in an ivory tower doing some metaphysics. Well, what Elkindi is probably best known for is beginning a project, really taking up a project that was already ongoing, that would become one of the the biggest concerns in uh, Islamic scholarship, and that was reconciling the Greek philosophy and, to some extent, the Hindu philosophy and Zoroastrian works, basically anything outside of the monotheistic religions with Islam, basically showing that it was compatible and could be used within the Muslim empire. Now, this is something that had begun centuries earlier, and it really began with Eastern Christian scholars in the Byzantine Empire who were trying to reconcile Aristotle with Christianity, and the major center of this was Alexandria and also in Syria. These areas came under the control of the Umayyads. Well, during the Umayyad times, they were mostly concerned with getting things started, getting the government working, and basically establishing the infrastructure for the uh, political economic, and even the religious organizations. But by the time the things had settled down in the Abbasid period, they were able to focus more on theological and philosophical questions. But of course, one of the big questions you had to answer was, was this material, which was essentially written by pagans, by people who were not Muslims or or not Jews or Christians, was it useful and was it acceptable in this monotheistic empire? This was important because this is a faith that claims to be the final revelation, the successor and perfecter of everything that had gone on before. So we can assume that if Aristotle and Galen and Euclid are writing about the natural world, God's creation, and they're writing about it accurately and reflecting what's actually there, the natural laws of the universe, then these are things that are good, part of God's creation, and therefore they can be used by Islam. Well, what Elkindi did, and he was carrying on the work of earlier Christian philosophers and would be carried on by people who became uh, much more uh, well-known than him, particularly Ibn Sina later on, was to use the works of the Greeks themselves. In this case, he was using Euclid's system of logic, the mathematical system of logic and proofs to show that this worked. I mean, he was attacking it from all sides. And this just gives you an idea of how robust Islamic scholarship was. It's not really the medieval idea we have of this is religion and it's separate from science and you can't touch it. I mean, they wanted to show the the compatibility of all knowledge, religious and scientific, and they didn't see a split between them from all angles, proving it through uh, Greek logic, proving it through mathematical logic. So Elkindi's probably best known work is called On First Philosophy, and the first philosophy he's referring to is Aristotle. 
And it's important to remember here that Aristotle has a dominant position in the world of ancient philosophy. As far as the Arabs were concerned, he is known as El Mu'allam al-Awwal, meaning the first teacher. And in Europe, he would be known as, quote, the philosopher. When you said the philosopher, you meant Aristotle. Well, the key thing that Al-Kindi was focusing on in this work was the philosophy of being. And for Al-Kindi, that was theology, the philosophy of God and truth. At some points, Al-Kindi disagreed with Aristotle, and particularly one issue that he disagreed with, and this is one that would become a major controversy throughout, really throughout the entire uh, Islamic Middle Ages and even today, is the idea of the universe being eternal, which is what Aristotle thought. Now, of course, Al-Kindi could not square this with the belief in a divine creation. The universe was created by God, creation, of course, applies uh, a point in time when it was created. But what Al-Kindi does, rather than just say, well, we have to throw this out because this guy was obviously a pagan, he didn't know God, and so therefore he got some things wrong, says, I'm going to use Aristotle's own system of proofs. So he used Greek logic, he used a system of proofs from mathematics developed by the Greeks, the same ones that Aristotle and Euclid would have accepted themselves to show, even by their own rules, their Greek logic would have argued for a creation at a period in time. So not to say that, well, they were wrong because they're pagan, and if, if you say that, then perhaps their entire philosophy, everything they wrote could be wrong. And I mean, we see the same thing being claimed by a lot of religious activists today. The idea that, well, since scientists, we believe they're wrong about evolution, they must be wrong about everything else, climate change. What he's doing is saying, no, they got it wrong, but they got it wrong by misapplying their own rules, their own logical uh, formula. And so if you apply them but the way he does it, it shows that actually the creation in time makes sense. So therefore, what he's doing is saying, I'm going to disagree with Aristotle, who is the, the towering name considered the, the greatest of the philosophers. Al-Kindi's saying, well, I'm going to disagree with him. By his own standards, he didn't apply his own system of logic correctly. And when I do it, you see, this is what he should have come up. First thing we notice from this, it, you have to really know the material very well to be able to do that. Okay, You have to be quite intelligent to say, well, I'm going to do Aristotle better than Aristotle did. But uh, secondly, you can see that they're not walking away from intellectual challenge. He's not just saying, well, these guys are pagan, we'll not accept them. Uh, he's taking it on full full bore to say, hey, you, you know, we're not afraid of logic. We're not afraid of science and Greek philosophy. So when we think of the medieval period, particularly in Christian Europe, we have this idea of books being banned and scientists being condemned, and there's, there's sort of this fear of you know, science deceiving people. That's definitely not what we're seeing in the Muslim world at the time of Al-Kindi. This is very much an idea of bring it on. You know, anything they have to say is only going to reinforce what we believe. Well, Al-Kindi didn't stop there with Aristotle. He actually went on to write about a, a huge number of subjects. Uh, for example, he takes on Euclid in optics, and most of it he accepts, but he points out things that he believes that Euclid got wrong in terms of optics. And I mean, again, he's taking on the big name in that subject. 
Well, he wasn't limited to that. Uh, he even went and wrote about astronomy, which of course was a, a very important subject uh, throughout the, the medieval world, but particularly to the Arabs because they navigated through a lot of desert areas and over water. And also, astronomy was extremely important to this Arab empire for timekeeping. I mean, this is one way that they could do that, particularly uh, the Muslim festivals and celebrations throughout the year had to be timed in a certain way. Now, we have to cut him some slack because when we talk about astronomy, uh, today we separate astronomy, which is a very uh, prestigious science, from astrology, which is like the pseudoscience version of it, the same way we separate, let's say, chemistry from alchemy, the idea you can make gold out of uh, base elements. In the medieval times, these things were tied together. There wasn't a huge distinction between the two of them, and that's just because what we would now think of today as uh, astrology were ideas that ended up not being able to be proven by science. So it hadn't been separated out uh, to that degree. So what we see in a lot of the works that Al-Kindi worked on is he's talking about astronomy, but not just the position of the stars in terms of navigation, but there is an idea that comes from the Greeks and was still very popular amongst the Arabs in the Middle Ages that the movement of the planets and the stars, the heavenly bodies, has an impact on what goes on on Earth. Now, we today we think of that of, as horoscopes in astrology. But to them, that made sense. I mean, God put all those celestial bodies up there. They're having some impact on what goes on down here. So one of the most famous books that Al-Kindi wrote was entitled On Rays. In Rays, he's talking specifically about cosmic rays, rays emitted by the stars, and how they can explain physical phenomena. And in fact, Al-Kindi tried to explain just about everything you could imagine. And so it's an interesting blend of optics, which was a, a science he was very much interested in, astrology, uh, Aristotle's cosmology, that is how the entire universe was put together, and of course, Islam. And so uh, Aristotle had come up with the idea that stars existed in fixed spheres around the earth. I mean, they could see some were closer than others. So he thought there were different spheres, like levels surrounding the earth. And of course, the earth was at the center. Well, Al-Kindi takes this idea even further. And he applies a good deal of actually accurate science, which is pretty close to what we know today, about the transmission of light rays to theorize about how light from the stars reached Earth and would affect events here. Then he puts on top of this theology, seeing the stars as being God's agents for carrying out his work on Earth. So, of course, God is responsible for what's going on on Earth, but he does it through the stars. And here's some optics and astronomy and putting it all together to show you exactly how he does it. Well, of course, we can look at a lot of this today and say it's, it turns out to be pseudoscience. But what is important here is that he is working with ideas he doesn't see as separate. Talking about accurately mapping where certain stars are in the sky, talking about measuring the light rays they put out and how they would travel, and then talking about how that's part of God's plan to affect human behavior. To him, it's all part of one thing. 
Amongst his other sciences, Elkindi wrote on what we would today classify as psychology. He didn't classify it that way. Uh, he believed he was talking about Aristotle, but a lot of what he talks about in, in that sense is really platonic ideas, uh, whether he really knew it or not. He was going off of some of the Christian commentators who were using a lot of Plato. But one area in which Al-Kindi is probably best known, and this was the adoption of the Indian Convention of Numerals. And those are the numbers that are familiar to us today, and particularly the use of the zero as the placeholder. And it's a little bit confusing because these, of course, became famous in the Western world as, quote, Arabic numerals which is a very interesting misnomer, given out about how much actual Arabic knowledge the Western world did adopt and try to pass it off as their own. Uh, the one thing they did label and stays with us to this day as being known as Arabic is something that clearly came from India. And these replaced the notorious Roman numerals, and anyone who's ever studied the Roman numerals knows they're good for... Uh, the titles of Rocky movies, but that's about it. You try to do math with Roman numerals, it's pretty near to impossible. So this huge revolution in mathematics, the idea of the decimal system of the uh, numbers one through nine, and then zero as the placeholder, which revolutionizes mathematics. It's, I mean, clearly the, the biggest development in the history of mathematics comes from India. It's coming from the other side of most of the scholarship that they are studying and is eventually introduced into the Western world. Well, Al-Kindi is one of the first Arabs to adopt this convention. A lot of people after him are going to develop it further and develop more specific mathematics, but he is one of the first to introduce it. That's just one of the things he did. So when we get a look at just one guy like Al-Kindi and see him as a leading figure in the translation movement, it's clear we're talking about a lot more than translation. Yes, he supervised the translation of hundreds of books, some of the greatest classical works, but he's also an innovator in a huge number of sciences, I mean, far more than any one person would try to do today. And yet, at the same time, we also mentioned he is one of many doing this. Uh, we know his main competitor was the Hunayn family, but there were many others being sponsored throughout the Arabic empire. And so what we see in Al-Kindi, although he is famous today as the first Arabic philosopher, uh, really is an example of the kind of person who is leading this movement. So when we talk about this translation movement, really is this beginning of a huge intellectual movement Al-Kindi is one representative, and he is pretty typical. Um, he's, he's one of the greatest and most accomplished, but what he's trying to do is what most of the scientists are trying to do at his time. Of course, Al-Kindi and the translators of Baghdad would suffer a fate that was pretty common to scholars of this period. As great as they were, they would very quickly be eclipsed by others who improved upon their ideas and put them into their, their own words. Al-Farabi, who would follow, was the next great teacher. And, of course, coming later on was Ibn Sina, who would really be the, the greatest and most renowned uh, Arabic philosopher.
So thank you very much for your kind attention to this episode. I hope we've begun to establish some of the groundwork of this phenomenal period in time, and we'll continue to look at some of the great developments and how they affect uh, Muslim philosophy and theology and how that affects the, the view of the world and the exchange of ideas with the West in future episodes. So thank you so much for your attention. It's been a pleasure. We'll see you next time. Ma salama.